and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 5, The Barrister of Bright Talent, Ripper Suspect Montague John Druitt. I'm Jonathan Mangus in Topeka, Kansas, and joining me today, as always, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Howard Brown. Hi, Howard. Good to be here. Good to be here, John. In Hull, in the UK, is Mike Covell. Hi, Mike. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Robert McLaughlin usually joins us from Edmonton in Canada, but he had a prior engagement today, so we have a holdover from last week sitting in his chair, Dan Norder. Hi, Dan. Hi, glad to be back. And our special guest today is writer and researcher Andy Spalick. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. And uh, Andy's been specializing in the suspect Montague Druitt for the last three years, and he has two articles coming out this month. One has already been released in the new issue of Ripperologist, and a, a second article will be coming out later this week in the new edition of Ripper Notes. So we're really glad that you came on the show today, Andy. My pleasure. Um, I was wondering, if for, just to start us off, if you could give us a, a, tell us a little bit about yourself. And how, and then how you became uh, interested in Jack the Ripper, and from there, um, how um, you uh, became uh, interested in, in researching the suspect Montague Druitt. Okay, well, I think uh, a lot of people who are on the casebook uh, or the various forms know that I, I am a clergyman. I'm a, a Lutheran minister. Uh, uh, 40, going to be 48 years old next month, so I've been around a little bit. Uh, got started interest in being interested in Jack the Ripper probably about mm, 1987 or so. It was coming up on the centennial, and there were a lot of television documentaries coming out, and I remember one in particular that I, that I happened to catch and that caught my interest. It was the one where they had a panel and they voted on the most likely suspect, and I think, I think it was Kosminski ended up the winner of that. But anyway, that piqued my interest. And so for a few years I read a little bit, not a whole lot, just kind of had it on the back burner. Then in 1990, my wife and I took uh, our second trip over to England. And while, I w while we were in London, took a walking tour that Martin Fido was doing at the time. And, and he took us through the East End. And at that time, there were a few more of the period buildings that were still standing. Essex Wharf was tumbling down, but it was still there. And there was a little bit more atmosphere than there is today. And that really got me hooked. I bought uh, Martin's book right after that and read it. Uh, I think I read most of it on the plane on the way home. And that got me really, really going on it. And I really favored Martin's theory or variations of it for a number of years. Had heard of Druid, of course, but pretty much had discounted him for the reasons that most people do. You know, it just doesn't seem like the most likely suspect to us. Until a few years ago when I got around to reading Howells and Skinner, The Ripper Legacy. And uh, while I don't agree with, you know, the whole premise of that book, it got me looking at Druid again and thinking, well, now here's somebody that we should not write off so quickly. And here's somebody that we should look into more. And uh, Howells and Skinner were the first to mention John Henry Lonsdale, too. And I got very interested in that potential connection there, as you probably know, because I had an article in uh, Ripperologist, I think, in November about a possible link there. So that really got me going on it and, you know, been been working on it ever since. Now, Druitt was uh, the uh, 
strongest of three suspects named by Melville McNaughton. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Montague Druid for those uh, who are listening who are unfamiliar and need a refresher on him. Okay, yes. Uh, as you say, McNaughton named uh, three potential suspects, uh, Druid and Kosminski and Ostrog, and he favored, particularly in the Aberconway version, in the, in the version that he uh, initially wrote that was kind of his draft, he made it very clear that Druitt was the best of those three suspects, in his opinion. Montague Druitt was born down in Dorset in a little town called Wimborne Minster. A lot of times we just call it Wimborne, but the actual name of the town is Wimborne Minster uh, in, in the year 1857. His father was a very prominent uh, surgeon, uh, had, a, had, a, had a long medical career. He also had an uncle, Uncle Robert, that was even a more prominent surgeon or physician. He, uncle Robert wrote a, a, a very uh, famous textbook on medicine back in the 19th century. Uh, Montague Druitt uh, um, attended uh, Winchester College down in the south of England, and uh, from Winchester went on to Oxford. Uh, during his time at Winchester and his time at Oxford, he was very involved in sport. He played cricket. He played football. Uh, he played a game called Fives at uh, Winchester, anyway, which is sort of a handball game. Seemed to be a very bright student at Winchester, anyway. He did quite well there. He did well in debate. Uh, when he went on to Oxford, he didn't have quite the academic success there that he had at Winchester. But after graduating Oxford, he went on to study law, and uh, was eventually admitted to the bar and practiced uh, practiced law. Had chambers at uh, King's Bench Walk, which is a very exclusive uh, set of buildings, set of uh, legal chambers in London. And he also taught or served in a, as an assistant master at a school in Blackheath, run by one George Valentine. And uh, it actually lived. He had his residence there at the school in uh, in, in Blackheath. And that's where he was in 1888 when the Ripper murders took place. So, and, kind of brings, yeah. And, and um, mental illness ran in Druitt's family, correct? Yes, it did. Um, his mother, uh, Anne Harvey Druitt, uh, suffered from, we don't know exactly what kind of mental illness, but it was quite a severe, uh, probably some kind of a schizophrenia. She became very psychotic toward the end of her life. She died... Uh, it was about a year, I guess, after uh, Druitt died. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she became extremely mentally ill. There were uh, relatives of Druitt that either committed suicide or had attempted suicide. Uh, a grandmother, uh, Druitt's aunt, his mother's sister, had attempted suicide. And one of Druitt's own sisters later on in life as an elderly lady actually committed suicide. So that kind of mental illness uh, definitely ran in his family. Now, um, what information is known about the uh, events leading up to Druitt's own suicide? Um, you mean the events that might have caused the suicide? Well, just uh, dates. Um, you know uh, what? What his act? What? What? Uh, what he was doing at the time leading up to this, his suicide? Um, okay. How productive he was as a barrister and as as, uh, and working at Valentine's School and kind of the, the circumstances surrounding his death. Okay, maybe maybe we'll work backwards a little bit then. Uh, Montague Druitt, well, let's 
let's start from when his body was found. His body was found uh, floating in the Thames uh, at Chiswick near uh, a, uh, a, a shipyard called Thornycrofts uh, on the last day of the year, on December 31st, 1888. The medical examiner had said that the body had been in the water for, according to McNaughton, for upwards of a month, in other words, more, more than a month. Uh, if we trace uh, Druitt's last known movements, uh, his suicide probably took place around December 1st, so the medical examiner was pretty accurate there. It, on his body was found a, uh, a number of things. One of them was a re the return half, the return portion of a, of a rail ticket. Uh, the, the ticket had been issued at Charing Cross for Hammersmith, and the, the return portion was still on him, and that was dated December 1st. So he apparently purchased that ticket on December 1st. There was also found on his body a season rail pass, first-class rail pass between Blackheath and London, which he must have used to commute to his chambers uh, and back. And then there was some money and some checks found on him as well. Recently we found that um, during the last week of his life, uh, it was a very interesting find that was made oh, a year or two ago, maybe a little longer. Uh, Druitt was actually in court. He had a, he had a court case and he functioned normally, he functioned very competently, won the case, as I recall, and that was during the last week of his life. So he was, he was able to function normally up until the end. But he also left behind a note, uh, I guess you could call it a suicide note, um, to the effect that he was afraid that he was becoming like Mother, who was insane, and that the best thing was for him to die. So... He was functioning normally, yet at the same time he seemed to be suffering from depression. Now, I, I think the seeds for this were sown even earlier, because um, if we look at his, his athletic career, he was a very avid cricket player. I don't know, being American, I don't know a whole lot about cricket. I know just enough to be dangerous, but... Uh, <laughs> But I do know, I've read and I do know that his, his performance dropped off markedly from 1887 to 1888. So something was going on there, physical, mental, or both. Something was, something was going on there, probably in the form of uh, beginnings of depression or something like that. Uh, but, you know, he was functioning as a barrister. He had cases. You talked about myths on the show last week. One of the myths you could have addressed was this myth that, that uh, Druid was a failed barrister. No, nothing of the kind. He had cases. He was functioning as a barrister right up until the very end. And he was teaching at Valentine's School. And uh, a lot of people say, well, why, was he, why would he have been messing around being a, a school teacher if he was a successful barrister? Well... The income from being a barrister was probably sporadic because he did not constantly have cases. So at least the teaching experience, so the teaching profession, gave him some steady income and gave him a place to live, too. And, and perhaps he just enjoyed teaching and being around the, the boys. Um, and he was found with a large amount of money on him, and he also uh, was pretty well off in the bank. Um, having mm -hmm. been dismissed from Valentine's School um, uh, on November 30th of 1888? Probably, yes. Yeah, that's uh, the, the newspaper account, uh, one of the newspaper accounts of his death is a little bit puzzling because it, it can be read in different ways. Um, uh, you know, it gives a date of December 30th for his dismissal, but that's clearly impossible. If, he's, if his body is found on December 31st, he's been in the water for a month. He couldn't have been dismissed on December 30th. 
So it's probably an error, probably for November 30th, which makes perfect sense if he if he went and bought this rail ticket um, that was found on him on December 1st, committed suicide right after that. That makes sense with having been dismissed from his teaching position on November 30th. Unfortunately, we don't know why he was dismissed. Uh, the, the newspaper account of his inquest gives uh, his brother as saying that when he inquired, he made inquiries into Druitt's, when Druitt was missing, into his whereabouts. He made inquiries at the school and found that he had gotten into serious trouble and had been dismissed. So that's the only clue we have, is that he had gotten into serious trouble. But uh, the checks that were found on him are a pretty good indication that uh, he was probably paid his salary. Uh, it was customary for school teachers that they would be paid at the end of the term. November 30th was a Friday. It was the end of the term. So he was probably paid for his services for that term. And then there was another check, so probably paid a little extra, um, maybe a severance pay or something. So he appears to have left on somewhat good terms. Andy, I have a question for you. Okay. Um, coming from Paul Beggs, the facts. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Beggs says that Druitt was last seen alive on the 3rd of December of 1888. Yeah. Uh, would you, um, do you have any indication as why there's a discrepancy from December 1st and December 3rd? Well, uh, there is a discrepancy, and... Uh, the, on, on Druitt's own tombstone, it gives a, a death date of, I think it's December 4th, December 3rd or December 4th, I've forgotten which, and nobody quite knows where that date comes from. But there are some probate documents uh, concerning Druitt's uh, uh, estate. There are some probate documents that give a death date of, again, it's either December 3rd or December 4th. Nobody knows where that comes from. My guess... My guess is that it comes from a remark that was made that when Druitt's friends contacted his brother, that was on December 11th, and they indicated to William Harvey, uh, Druitt's brother, that he had not been, Druitt had not been seen in his chambers for more than a week. Well, if you take December 11th and you subtract a week from that, you've got December 4th, or more than a week, then you've got December 3rd. And I think that's an assumption from that statement. But I don't know. He could he could have been seen alive on December third, but I've not run into any documentation that that says he was definitely seen alive on that day. Okay. Thank you. Now the last the last we can trace him, the last place we definitely know he was would have been, in my opinion, would have been at Hammersmith at the rail station there, because he bought the ticket from Charing Cross to go to Hammersmith on December first. Presume that he arrived at Hammersmith Station. What happened after that, I don't know. How he, how he ends up floating in the river at Chiswick Wharf, uh, I, I don't know. Now, what, what um, transpired between his suicide and, um, and McNaughton's comments that, that turned um, Montague Druitt into one of the leading ripper suspects? Ah. Well, I think we know more about that now than we, than we had before. Um, because of a uh, article, a newspaper article that I happened to come across about a month ago. To back up a little bit, we had known that there was an article in the Bristol Times and Mirror that was dated 11th of February, 1891. And let me just read the paragraph for you here. This is from the Bristol Times and Mirror. It says, I give a curious story for what it's worth. There is a West of England member who in private declares that he has solved the mystery of Jack the Ripper. His theory, and he repeats it with so much emphasis that it might almost be called his doctrine, 
is that Jack the Ripper committed suicide on the night of the last murder. I can't give the details for fear of libel action, but the story is so circumstantial that a good many people believe it. He states that a man with blood-stained clothes committed suicide on the night of the last murder, and he asserts that, that the man was the son of a surgeon who suffered from homicidal mania. I do not know what police think of the story, but I believe that before long a clean breast will be made and that the accusation will be sifted thoroughly. Now, we've known about that article for some time, and the really interesting thing about it is the statement that the suspect that this member of parliament from the, from the West Country is talking about is the son of a surgeon. Well, Montague Druid, of course, was the son of a surgeon. The question in our minds had always been, well, who is this member of parliament from the West of England? Who is he? Where is he from? Well, about a month ago, I just happened to come across it as I was, I was looking through some databases, some digital newspaper archives, and I came across the, a newspaper article from the, uh, a newspaper out of Cardiff. And in that article, the Western Mail, this was a year after, this is February of 1892, in that article it says, Mr. Farquharson, MP from West Dorset was credited, I believe, sometime since, with evolving a remarkable theory of his own on the matter. He believed that the author of the outrages destroyed himself. So now we have that West of England Member of Parliament identified as Henry Richard Farquharson, who was Member of Parliament for West Dorset. And he lived in a little village called Tarrant Gunville, which was only 10 miles from uh, Wimborne Minster where where Dorset was where Druitt was born and grew up so I you know I and he was exactly the same born in the same year as Montague Druitt so I have to believe that they were acquainted with one another and that Farquharson knew what he was talking about and that the son of a surgeon that he was talking about clearly has to be Montague Druitt so by 1891 by February of 1891 this member of parliament, Farquharson, was going around talking about what, in essence, was, was Druid. He wasn't using the name Druid, but he was talking about Druid then. And I believe at that time, McNaughton would have certainly have found out about that, and it would have come to his attention. Um, okay, now, um, McNaughton, uh, you believe... Uh, became aware of this uh, allegation fairly fairly rapidly, I mean, like uh, circa 1891. Oh, yes, because in the, in the original article from the Bristol Times and Mirror, it, it says that the police had been informed. So, yeah, by 1891, uh, McNaughton would have known, the police would have known, that he, they would have known that this that Farquharson was talking about uh, Druitt as a suspect. And he didn't put it in it in writing, McNaughton, that is, until 1894. Well, not that we know of. Of course, I, I don't know what McNaughton wrote or didn't wrote that might not have survived, but uh, no, uh, the McNaughton Memorandum dates from 1894, and that had previously been the earliest mention of Druid or uh, allusion to Druid we knew of, but now we can push that date back to 1891. Okay, and about that, I want to ask you a couple questions, and then I'll turn it over to some of our other participants. Uh, sure. Um, Aberlein, um, uh to the Pall Mall Gazette in 1903 um, pretty much said that the drowned doctor theory was a bunch of hogwash 
Um, mm-hmm. And it, and uh, Aberlein based uh, Aberlein claimed in the Pall Mall Gazette article that um, the only information that the police had to go on was the home office report written um, within days of Druitt's body being pulled from the Thames. Yeah. Um, and there has been some. And, and so some authors have, uh, before your discovery, some authors had speculated that, well, whatever information that McNaughton received um, that he related in his, in his memoranda concerning it, private information from family and friends and stuff like that, um, mm-hmm. was, was, made, was made after Aberlein's retirement in 1892. Um, mm-hmm. Well, now you seem to have proven that wrong in that um, McNaughton was aware of, of this information um, by Farquharson uh, prior to Aberlein's retirement. And so apparently the information just didn't seem to trickle down um, to Aberlein. Uh, uh, do you have an opinion on any of that? Yeah, either it didn't trickle down to him, and that's very possible, or else he simply discounted it. He, he may have heard it and discounted it. An interesting thing is that Aberlein himself was from uh, a town called Blandford Forum, and that's only six miles from uh, uh, Farquharson's hometown. So I don't know. I don't know how well uh, Aberline kept in touch with his with his ancestral roots or his family roots there in Dorset. But it's it is very interesting that his his roots are right next to Farquharson, right where the origin of this story comes from. But either Aberline for some reason didn't know, or he knew, but he discounted it because he had his own theory that he liked better. Right, and, um, okay, let's get some other, uh, we have uh, three other people, so I'll, I'll, I'll shut up for a little bit. Dan Norder, uh, editor of Ripper Notes, would you like to make any comments? Oh, well, uh, the, the Druid case is, is one of these where uh, it's really a shame that we don't have more information than we do. Yeah. Um, the McNaughton Memoranda, he starts out by giving it kind of as a listing three suspects that any one of which might be more likely than Thomas Gutbush, right. the suspect that was named in a newspaper as possibly being the Ripper, any three of them would have been more likely. Now, some people have argued that you know these three names were kind of pulled out of a hat and that they weren't necessarily even the best three. I, I do think that that's probably not the case. What we do see is that McNaughton kind of, in the years after this, makes other statements to other people where he sounds very uh, convinced of himself that Druitt was the most likely suspect. Right. So I, I think the idea that these were just three names that weren't really of any importance with McNaughton's later comments, and, and also that the other main name on there, um, Kosminski, was, as we know, uh, Sir Robert Anderson's favorite suspect, I think that it really puts a different slant on these three suspects. Yeah, it does. I think, you know, it's important that when we, whenever we look at the McNaughton Memorandum that you, that you have both the Aberconway version and the Scotland Yard version side by side. I mean, Paul Begg in his uh, Definitive History has it laid out that way in his, in his book, and it's very helpful. The Aberconway version was apparently McNaughton's uh, his draft, it's the one he wrote for himself, it's the one he kept in his files. This one that was found, uh, returned to Scotland Yard, was uh, was the official version that he turned in. And when you look at them side by side, you can see that the the draft, the Aberconway version, he's much more, he much more readily identifies Druid as, as the man. I mean, he is almost positive 
that of those three, Druid is is the one. He's the guilty one. He hedges a little bit in the Scotland Yard version. You can tell he still favors Druid, but it's not as dramatically so there. But it's also interesting, you know, a lot of people point out McNaughton's errors. They say, oh, well, he couldn't even get the facts right about Druid because he says he was 41 years of age when, in fact, Druid was 31 years old. He says he was a doctor when he wasn't a doctor. He was a barrister. Well, you know, those things are in the draft. They're in the Abercrombie version where, where McNaughton gives Druid's age incorrectly. He says he's a doctor. But in the official version, he hedges. He, he doesn't give McNa- uh, uh, Druid's age at all. And he says that Druid was said to be a doctor. So he even backs off from that. So I think we have to be a little careful when we want to jump on McNaughton and say, well, he didn't have the facts straight. Well, maybe in his draft he didn't have them straight, but he, he at least hedged or eliminated some of those errors from the official version. Andy? Yeah. I have a question. I have a question for you about the McNaughton Memorandum. Okay. Um, as as we noted, there are some internal mistakes within within the context of the uh, memorandum, uh, as you just mentioned. Yeah. And if we look at the Bristol Times and Mirror, we mm-hmm. see the one the one line that says, "I can't give details for fear of a libel action," which brings up this question I had for you. I was going to ask you before the show. Do you okay. think that that the McNaughton Memorandum? makes mistakes, that McNaughton made a mistake on purpose, or do you think he he, he may have tried to uh, protect the family of Druitt by uh, giving out the wrong information, you know, that he was a doctor yeah. and that he was 41 years old? You, did, has that ever come to your mind? It has come to my mind, and as a matter of fact, I've, I've been discussing this. It was recently brought up by a gentleman from Australia who we've been discussing this very thing by email, and... Uh, it was, it was his idea, not mine, that, that McNaughton may have done just what you said. I kind of doubt it. Um, I kind of doubt it because, for one thing, the the errors are mostly in the private version, the Ever-Conway version that was not ever put in any file. The, the version that was in the files has less of those errors in them. And uh, secondly, I think for a police officer to falsify an official document is a pretty serious charge. And... While it's certainly not impossible, I would I would look for other explanations before I look for that one. Okay, I think they're I think they're honest mistakes. uh, Could one of those other explanations be that he was relying mainly on press reports of Druitt's suicide that inaccurately, or not inaccurately, but the initial press reports of when his body was pulled from the Thames described him as a man appearing to be about 40 years of age. Right. And I've, I've often thought that. In fact, I put that in, a, in, in one of the articles that I wrote. Uh, first impressions die hard, and if, if the first word that was given to the police when, when Druitt's body was recovered was that he was about 40 years old, then that's what might have been remembered later. And I don't know where McNaughton was getting the biographical information about Druitt from, whether he you know, whether that was being told to him orally by other police officers that he was talking to or where he got that from. But it just might be that that somebody had picked up on that incorrect press report and, and simply misreported his age. It could have been a, just an error of arithmetic. If if, uh, if McNaughton had in front of him Druitt's birth date, he might have just made an arithmetic error because he was off by 10 years. You know, that's possible too. I think it's just an honest mistake. And, and as far as being a, a doctor rather than a lawyer, well, he was indeed the son of a surgeon, and and that's pretty close. What he what he says, you know, a doctor from a good family, that's pretty close to being the son of a surgeon. I think that's just a, a just an honest slip. 
Mike Covell and Hull, um, why don't you add some stuff to this discussion as well? Yep, uh, Andrew, just a, a short one really. In okay. the Bristol Times and Mirror article um, uh-huh. of February 11th, 1891, right. the final line, it says the accusation will be sifted thoroughly. Do we know if there was an investigation or, you know, if they, they looked at that as it yeah. says in, in the... It, it, that is an interesting statement. And then the sentence again says, the reporter says, I do, I do not know what the police think of the story. But I believe that before long a clean breast will be made and that the accusation will be sifted thoroughly. That implies at least that the reporter thought there would be an investigation. And I don't know what you make of a clean breast. That sounds to me almost like a confession, although clearly the suspect is dead. But that somebody is going to admit something or somebody is going to bring information to light that will you know, implicate through it. Whether there was an investigation or not, there doesn't seem to be. There doesn't seem to be any record of a formal investigation into Druid. And, and frankly, I don't know why Why would the police launch an investigation into somebody that was dead. It doesn't even seem to, to really be very practical. But uh, in answer to your question, I didn't know, I, we don't know that any investigation took place. It is possible, though, that um, Farquharson um, went straight to Melville McNaughton. It's possible. Uh, you know, we don't know that. Earlier, earlier I had uh, suggested the fact that uh, John Henry Lonsdale was the intermediary there because Lonsdale knew, apparently knew both Montague Druitt and he was a classmate of Mebel McNaughton's at Eton, so there was a common acquaintance. Uh, that's still possible, but frankly, we don't need Lonsdale anymore because now we have Farquharson's name and we know that he certainly probably knew the Druid family, and he, he would have had access to uh, McNaughton. Incidentally, Farquharson also is, a, is an Eaton boy. So uh, he and McNaughton both had that in common. They weren't there quite at the same time. At least they weren't in the same class, but they were both Eaton boys. They both had something else in common, too, and that is tea plantations in India or Ceylon. Uh, Farquharson had a tea plantation in Ceylon, and McNaughton, of course, managed his father's plantation in India. So you know, they had things in common. They may well have known one another, too. So it, it could have come directly from Farquharson, or, you know, it could have come around about to McNaughton. Andy, I have another question about the uh, Bristol Times and Mirror, if you don't okay. mind. Okay, sure. Um, within, the, within the article, uh, one sentence here, he states that a man with bloodstained clothes committed suicide on the night yeah. of the last murder. How do we reconcile that with the fact that Druitt was found, you know, in the Thames for over a month? Okay. Well, let, let's take both of the, the statements in that sentence, the bloodstained clothes and the suicide on the night of the last murder. The bloodstained clothes, I think, is probably just a bit of sensationalism that was tossed in there either by Farquharson or maybe even by the reporter just to, just to sensationalize the story. Although, you know, we'd have to say that we don't know that, you know, Druitt might have there might have been some bloodstained clothes found among Druid's things. We don't know that, but it doesn't seem that there is. So that appears to be just a piece of sensationalism. Okay. The other part, though, is the really interesting part, that he, that the suspect committed suicide on the night of the last murder. That, that clearly is not true of Druid. He committed suicide about three weeks later. But the interesting thing is that although McNaughton knows when Druitt's body was found, and he knows that Druitt's body was in the Thames for about a month or just a little more, 
Yet McNaughton a number of times indicates that Druitt disappeared on the night of the last murder, he puts it once, or in his memoirs, McNaughton even says that he committed suicide immediately after the last murder. So McNaughton has picked up this error that Farquharson has made, and he's preserved this error in his writings, which I think is is probably the most telling piece of evidence of all that McNaughton's information is coming from this Farquharson story, because that's it's it's wrong, but he's preserving that error. All right, let's talk a little bit about opportunity here. Um, okay. That's an issue that's raised with Drew quite a bit. Um, as you say, he was an avid cricket player. He uh, had matches um, in the autumn of 1888. And um, if you could um, go through for us um, what what kind of opportunity would have Drew have had to actually uh, commit these murders? All righty. Well, first, I, I do want to make reference to a statement in uh, an excellent book that just came out last fall, uh, The London of Jack the Ripper, Then and Now, by Rob Clack and Phil Hutchinson. Fantastic, marvelous book. I enjoyed it thoroughly until I got to the last page, when, uh, and I understand that, that Phil was the one who wrote the comment. Uh, Phil made the comment that... Um, it's now known, and I'm not quoting it word for word, but to the effect that it's now known that Druitt was away from London uh, playing cricket when most of the murders were took place. Well, I don't know if Phil has some new information, and if he has some new information, I hope he brings it forward soon so that we can see it. Based on all the information that we have had up until now, there are no conflicts between Druitt's cricket schedule and any of the murders. Now, there are some there are some close calls in there. But let me just run down. Now, I'm talking only about the canonical murders. Um, if we want to consider Martha Tabram's murder, there's a little bit more of a problem there because uh, Druitt did play cricket in Dorset on the weekend before and the weekend after Tabram was murdered. And it's logical to deduce he spent that week in between there in Dorset. So that that would be problematic if we're going to include Tabram. I don't think that Tabram was a Ripper murder victim, though. So let's go to Nichols as the first murder, uh, first canonical murder. She was murdered early in the morning on August the 31st. Druitt's uh, next known appearance is on September 1st, where he's playing cricket in Dorset. And some people have hopped on that and said, well, you know, how could he, you know, how could he murder... Uh, Nichols in London on, uh, on uh, August 31st and be playing cricket in Dorset on the next day. Well, I think sometimes we forget when these murders took place. You know, Nichols was found at dawn, basically, on August 31st. Now, Druitt's cricket fixture isn't going to start until at the earliest mid-morning on the next day, September 1st. So Druitt has more than 24 hours to get from London to Dorset. It's about a well, today it's about a two-hour train ride. Maybe it was three hours in his day. So he's got plenty of time to get there. That's not a difficult difficulty at all. With regard to the second murder, Anne Chapman, that's early in the morning on September the 8th. Drew, uh, its next known appearance is later that morning, September the 8th, playing cricket. But this time he's playing in Blackheath, where Valentine's School is and where he lives. That's a distance of six miles from the East End. Um, the train, the train journey today is about a ten-minute ride. Maybe it would have been thirty minutes in Druitt's time, but he had, he had 
you know, four or five hours to spare between the murder and, and, and having to show up on the cricket pitch. So, you know, he could have made that one. And in fact, that's a sort of a, it's a sort of a mixed blessing to us because that actually tells us that Druitt was in Greater London on September 8th. It places him in the vicinity of the murder on the date of a murder. So while it's a little bit of a tight time frame for him to get to Blackheath, he can do it, and it does show that he's in Greater London at the time. Um, with regard to the uh, the next uh, the double event, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, that's uh, very early in the morning on September 30th, with Eddowes uh, being murdered shortly before 2 a.m., uh, by that time, the cricket season was all but over with. Uh, September 30th seems to have been about the last the last matches of the season. Uh, Druitt's usual team had ended its play. The September 8th match was its last match. There's no known uh, cricketing appearance of Druitt at that time. In his book, in his biography of, of Druitt, uh, D.J. Layton, makes a statement that Druitt on October 1st, Druitt was in the West Country in court. The problem with Leighton's book, as useful as it is and as, as good as it is for giving us biographical information about Druitt, he, 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 he cites no references. So I'm, I don't know whether that's Montague Druitt, whether it could have been a brother, a solicitor brother, or who that might have been. I have no way of checking it out. But let's assume it's true. Okay, that's October 1st. Remember that Eddowes and Stride are killed shortly after midnight on the morning of September 30th. So again, Druitt's got over 30 hours to take about a three-hour train ride. So that he's got no problem making that appointment either. And then with Mary Kelly, there's no, there's no known movements of Druitt within the next day or so after that. So there's no conflict there either. So at least with the canonical murders and with the information that's been available up until now there's no there's no direct conflict there's there's some close calls but there's no alibi for Druid um, although um, witness descriptions um, I mean Druid was a tall man and, well, and um, we don't really know uh, excuse me but we don't really know how tall he was he appears to have been a slender man just from pictures but there's no real way to gauge his height so I don't think we can say that he was a tall man. We just don't know. He certainly was physically capable of doing it. He had the strength to do it. Yeah. He had the athletic the athletic ability, and particularly the game of fives, that handball game required right. a fair amount of strength. But yeah. are there are there any particular witness eyewitness descriptions that that you believe uh, could have matched? You know, I'm I'm really very suspect of eyewitness descriptions, and I've talked to people. I've talked to Stuart Evans about this, who was, uh, you know, of course, a, a policeman for many years, and uh, you know, he he's told me some stories about witness descriptions that were just so totally wrong that I'm pretty skeptical about them. But you're, yeah, I guess you know, the, there is a point in that a lot of the witnesses seem to describe a rather short, stout man, and and that does, the stoutness does not seem to. Uh, uh, match the photos of Druitt we know. But remember, too, that the photos that we have of Druitt were of him as a very young man, which was at Oxford. And, you know, that was some ten years prior to uh, the murders. And I don't know about you guys, but I know that between the age of 21 and 31, I put on a few pounds, and I got to be a little more stout than I was at age 21. <laughs> so it, might, it might be that Druitt was a little heavier than 
than his appearance in those photos dictate. Yeah. Um, Andy, uh, could yeah. you uh, p- perhaps give us a, a few of the East End connections that Druitt may have had or definitely did have? Yeah, one of the uh, one of the the raps against Druitt as a suspect has been we can't tie him in any way with the East End of London, and I, you know that that's kind of puzzled me a little bit because. Uh, well, certainly it would make him a stronger suspect if we could tie him to the East End of London more more firmly. I, I don't believe that you eliminate someone, though, just because you, you're not able to demonstrate that he was in the East End definitely during the time of the murders. You know, it would be nice to do. but but And Bedruitt does seem to have some, some ties to the East End. Uh, excuse me. He has, uh, was it a... An uncle or a cousin, some somebody that had a, a medical practice for a while in the Minories there in the East End, and there was speculation for a while that that Montague Druitt might have uh, assisted, even though he was not a medical man, that he might have somehow been involved with that that medical practice there. I don't think there's anything to that. While it's not impossible, there's no indication that that's the case. But one thing I did discover when I started looking into the rail. Uh, schedules between Blackheath and London was that the logical commuting point for Druid as he would take the train into London to go to his chambers was uh, actually a Cannon Street Station. Uh, Cannon Street Station is not far from the East End. It's not in the East End, but it's not far. I, I walked it last uh, March when I was in London. I walked from Cannon Street to Mitre Square, and I timed that at 13 minutes, and that's with modern traffic and traffic lights and so forth. Probably would have been shorter in, in, in Druitt's day. Um, I, I don't know. Do you want me to go into the reasons why that uh, Cannon Street was the likely commuting point? I can if you like. Sure. Might okay. Well. Okay. Uh, we know that Druitt had the rail pass on him from the Southeastern Railway, the Southeastern Railway ran uh, between uh, Blackheath and London, and it operated into four London stations. It operated into London Bridge Station. It operated into Cannon Street Station. It operated into wh- what was called Waterloo Junction at that point. I've got a feeling that's probably Waterloo East today. It's in that area anyway. And then the terminus was at Charing Cross. And that's the order that the train took as it went into London. First stop would have been London Bridge. Then it would have crossed the Thames to go into uh, Cannon Street Station. But then in reading some old rail guides, I found out that there was a long delay, that the train was subject to long delays as it had to back out of Cannon Street Station. It had to actually reverse, reverse back across the river and go to Waterloo Junction and then from Waterloo Junction on to Charing Cross. And it got there were there were so many customer complaints about this long delay between Cannon Street Station and Charing Cross that the Southeastern Railway eventually dropped Cannon Street Station altogether. They said this is too much trouble. It's it's causing our, our customers too much trouble. Well, it so happens that Druitt's chambers at King's Bench Walk are almost almost at a midpoint between Cannon Street Station and Charing Cross Station. So, in other words, Druid, there, there would be no advantage to Druid. He's got no reason to stay on the train to endure these long delays just to get to Cannon Street Station, where he's no closer to his chambers than he would have been at King's Bench Walk. So, while we don't have any absolute proof, you know, logic certainly says, well, he must have, he must have gotten off the train regularly at Cannon Street Station and walked 
over to his chambers at King's Bench Walk. It just seems that that's the logical thing for him to do. Cannon Street Station, he's maybe 10, 10 minutes from Mitre Square. So it puts him at least very close to the East End. All right, Mike Kevill in Hull, let's bring you back into this conversation here. You're being awful quiet today. <laughs> I've been listening. It's fascinating. Um, is it possible that Druitt was dismissed in his absence from his school? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by that. In his absence? Yeah, for instance, he fails to turn up. Um, they look upon that as a serious... Um, oh. You know, he's not there basically to do his job. Uh, therefore, in his absence, the the, the, the get rid of him, uh, for want of a better word. You mean like he's absent without permission? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. let's go yeah. over that. That's another interesting... I, I, I agree with that. Good question, Mike. Because it is a good there question. Are, there are theories about why he was dismissed from Valentine's School. Yeah. So, so let's run through some of those. Okay. Well... One, one of the, the most... Uh, I'll start us off. The most... Popular one is that he was accused of some sexual improprieties with some of the students there, and and, and I do have a question about that. And this I don't know. Uh, the school has been described as a, a college preparatory school in some accounts. So I'd like to know from you uh, when you go into this um, this particular accusation, uh, what, what are the ages of the students we're talking about here that attended Valentine School in Blackheath? Oh, boy, you know, that's something I've never really looked into firsthand, but I've, I've been in, in the, under the impression that they were teenage boys, you know, probably from, you know, adolescent on up to uh, late teens. As you say, I think it was a college preparatory So they were they were young boys. Uh-huh. And, and you're right, one of the theories is uh, that there was some kind of uh, homosexual or uh, pedophilic uh, uh, sexual impropriety there with the students, and I, you know, I had always kind of not dismissed it, but said there, there's no real reason to to latch on to that. But I've been reading some things lately about some of the behavior that went on in some of these schools, including Eton for one, and uh, I, I have to say that's a possibility. Uh, there is the comment that McNaughton makes in the memorandum that. He believes that Druitt was sexually insane. A lot of people have latched onto that and said, okay, that, that's a euphemism for, for homosexuality. I don't think that it is necessarily, but it, it could be a reference to that. And it, it, could be, it could be that there was some kind of impropriety there, sexual impropriety with the boys that caused his dismissal. Against that is the, fact, the seeming fact that he was paid for the term. He was not. He was not dismissed without pay, although that could. There's an argument for that too. That that could have been an effort to just you know kind of smooth things over and avoid a public uh, uh, you know showing of, of a scandal or something like that. So that that is one theory that there was a, a sexual impropriety with the boys. Uh, another theory is that maybe there was some sexual impropriety with one of the staff with a servant, and maybe heterosexual. Uh, with a female servant. That's pure conjecture. We don't know. Um, another theory is that maybe there was a, a, some inappropriate behavior, not of a sexual nature, but some inappropriate behavior with one of the boys. Maybe he struck him or he, he, he spoke too harshly at him. Maybe the boy had an influential father or something and, and that uh, Druitt was dismissed because of that. That's a possibility, too. And I think Mike's uh, suggestion is another possibility that um, in some form or another, Druitt may have been may have been sacked for uh, 
simply non-performance of duties, either that his legal profession was taking too much of his time and he wasn't able to keep up with his teaching duties, or, uh, or possibly that he was uh, simply and inexplicably absent without permission. Um, the uh, the argument against that, I suppose, is that we're told that he got into serious trouble, and if it's simply a, a conflict between his legal duties and his, his teaching duties, that doesn't seem to be something you'd describe as serious trouble. However, if he's just simply away without leave, uh, one of the theories is that Druitt, because of his legal schedule, had mostly night duty at the school, that he was sort of a night warden, um, and he watched over the boys at night. If if Druitt had gone out at night for whatever reason, including possibly committing murder, if he had gone out at night and been discovered to be away at night without permission, well, that certainly could be serious trouble and could be reason for him to be sacked. And going back to your comment about um, referring to Druitt as sexually insane, um, mm-hmm. and people latch onto that, as you said, as, as a code word for uh, some kind of homosexual impropriety at the school. Yeah. It could also very well be that the nature of the murders themselves were sexual. So right. that follows that any uh, anyone who committed the murder would be sexually insane, and yeah. and it, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, any any kind of actions that, you know, of a homosexual nature. Right, and in his in his memoirs, uh, McNaughton switches to the term sexual mania or sexual maniac. And sexual mania seems to be a term that was used in Victorian times for any kind of a violent behavior uh, that was thought to have some sort of basis in, in sexuality. So I think we, I would interpret the sexually insane comment to, in light of the sexual mania comment that McNaughton was meaning the same thing with both, and probably just, as you say, a reference to violent behavior that was thought to have had a sexual root. All right, Dan, um, mm-hmm. uh, let's have some comments from you here. Okay. Yeah, the, uh, a lot of these, these comments that McNaughton and others made, they're somewhat ambiguous. The, uh, Andy's right that the, just the act of murder at the time, especially this type of murder, the Ripper murders, was considered uh, to be a, a sexual um, illness. Right. Uh, the, the standard reference that it would have been using at the time was a book called, I believe, Psychopathia Sexualis. Mm-hmm. Um, was written by someone on the continent. Uh, it was a very famous work, and it had a whole long list of offenses in there, of which the, the spectacular mutilation murders would only be a small part. And pretty much anything within that whole realm of, of disturbance could have all been considered um, to be a, a sexual sort of... of Problem. I mean, this is the Victorian age we're talking about, and Boy, sex that is not, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing, though, that that kind of points towards maybe possibly have been more of a homosexual thing is something that I find interesting. Is that we know that McNaughton shared some information on this suspect with the journalist uh, George Sims, mm-hmm. and we also know that that Sims contacted uh, John Littlechild, right, the former inspector. Right. And we don't have Sims's side of the conversation. We just have how Little Child responded. Right. But the paragraph that, that is, seems to be related to Jewett here is he specifically says that he'd never heard of a Dr. D in connection with the Whitechapel murders. 
Right. Okay, we know, we know that Sims had gotten his information from McNaughton. McNaughton had referred to him as a doctor, and D most assuredly must mean Druid. Probably, yeah. It's only logical. Right. And so Little Child says he's never heard of a Dr. D, and later in that same paragraph, he's talking about the Psychopathia Sexualis and uh, talking about the suspect that he came up with, Tumblety, and how that he was a known homosexual. Right. And it seems to be, the inference I make there anyway is that when Sims was asking about this Dr. D, he possibly was talking about homosexual acts in connection with him. It's we, certainly is, possible. Yeah. yeah. It's a conjecture, but it, it seems to fit. There's mm-hmm. a lot of other possible answers, too. It's certainly possible. And Howard? Howard? And... We may have lost Howard. Uh, um, I'll, I'll uh, follow up on that, that what Dan just said. Um, okay. Now, not the t- uh, there, there, is, there is some kind of debate, uh, uh, and, and it does mainly surround Tumblety and not Druid, and that is uh, that, that if, um, if, the, the mur- if the suspect was, was homosexual, then that follows that uh, they, they would not be uh, murdering uh, female prostitutes on the streets of London. Um, what, what are your feelings about about that? I mean, you you, you yeah. tend to discount um, as far as what, from what it sounds like, you tend to discount that the accusations, uh, as far as his dismissal from um, from the school, may have been hom- uh, homosexually related. But if they were, um, what what are your feelings about the uh, about uh, uh, any kind of motive? Or, or you know, any of that. Yeah, yeah. That that's a whole that's a, a whole other story. That's a, a mystery as to what a motive might have been, or as to whether a homosexual male would would commit these acts against females. Uh, and I don't know. I'm not enough of an expert on on that kind of psychology to know how likely that would be. But uh, yeah, as far as motive, I don't know. I don't. Can can you really when you've got someone that's mentally and emotionally disturbed, you know, is there really a motive? Uh, I think whoever the killer was, he was just so so disturbed and so deranged that he just was bent on killing. Uh, if we look at other serial killers, you know, do they always have motives? Do we always identify motives? I, I don't think so. I think it's I think it's almost a motiveless crime, um, just mm-hmm. just just bent on destruction and killing. Yeah, the way I look at that though is that. If uh, we can say that homosexuals would be less likely to do this sort of thing, which I think there is an argument to be made for that. I do think that the victims in this case, all being female, would imply that they were sought out particularly. We also know that some killers do treat it as as a form of sexual gratification. But the thing in, in Druitt's case is that you know, if he had been dismissed for homosexual acts, that doesn't necessarily say that he was a full-fledged homosexual. That's true. I mean, uh, the the whole in the Victorian age, when you have boys' schools where people were segregated, there was a lot more of this kind of activity going on. It's it's like when you hear about pirates on ships, you know, yeah. um, things like that, where you have a lot of men associated with each other, and there's not a lot of females around. It may have been more what they got into as far as what they could had the opportunity to do. A lot of these people that we know that were in schools who had these kind of uh, actions when they were there 
when they grew up and left school, they got married, and as far as we can tell, have had perfectly normal heterosexual lives. Right. That's a very good point, Dan. That's very true. Now, I am uh, in, in text communication with Howard, and he does send a, another question for you. Okay. And and and, um, and now we looks like we just lost Dan also. We lost Dan. Oh, we're, they're dropping like flies. Yeah, they are. Um, <laughs> let me get him back. Here comes Dan back. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, um, technical difficulties. Um, uh, What's Howard's question? Uh, all right, Dan. Okay, uh, Howard's question is: is uh, since in the Bristol Times and Mirror article, um, it seems that Farquharson um, men- mentions every single aspect about Druitt, but his name. Is yeah. is there a chance that um, that Farquharson may have been an adversary of Druitt, or or uh, or? Um, Maybe not so friendly with the Druitt family, or is there is there any connections between Farquharson and the Druids, or that um, that could uh, um, that could have prevented him uh, from wanting to to name um, this suicide? Yeah, well, I mean, it seems to me if he's withholding the name, it's it's more that he would be protecting the family, and it would be a, a you know positive relationship between. Parkinson and the Druid family, but I don't know. That's the next thing I think we have to we have to look into, and we have to see if if we can tell whether there was a relationship between the Druids and and uh, Parkinson. An interesting thing that was pointed out to me was that uh, if you remember the uh, Lord Wimborne's ball, when uh, uh, which happened in in December, when uh, uh, the prince came down to to Wimborne there. And uh, a ball was held, and many prominent people were invited. Well, one of the names on the uh, invitation list was that of Montague Druitt. He was already dead at the time, but apparently whoever was making the invitations didn't know that. His body hadn't been found yet. Another name on that list was Henry Parkparson. So at least we know they were invited to the same ball. Now, probably every prominent person in Dorset was invited to that ball. But at least that you know it, it does show that there's a little bit of a link there. But but it seems to me that if anything, uh, there's an effort to protect the Druid family. But I think that probably comes more from fear of of libel action, because as we see the the subsequent versions of this story that are repeated in several other papers, like the the Pall Mall Gazette and and several others, um, they drop the detail that the suspect is the son of a surgeon. They drop that wording, and since the reporter in the Bristol Times and Mirror had alluded to not being able to give more information for fear of libel. I think that what's happened is various writers or editors determined, well, saying he's the son of a surgeon, that that's, that's too much information. That's going to give away his identity. We could get sued, so we better drop that. And, and so they drop it very clumsily. The other, the article, other articles say that he was the, the son of a father with homicidal mania, and that doesn't even make much sense when you think about it. Wouldn't make any sense to describe someone as the son of a father, and clearly it's not the father who has homicidal mania. It's the it's the son. It's the suspect. So you know, the the original version is the version that says he was the son of a surgeon, but I think that was dropped for fear of libel action. Now, in your article in Ripperologist, uh, you you go into the reputation of Farquharson and how right. um, he was. Um, you've discovered that he had he kind of had a reputation. Um, for uh, speaking out of turn, or you, kind of, for lack of a better term, shooting his mouth off. Yeah. Um, 
Um, do you believe that that, I mean, um, Howard asks, uh, why, why would Farquharson bring this up at all to the press? Um, uh, what did he have to gain by it? Um, is, is he just being a bragger or, um, and, and you know, uh, what, what's the point of bringing up all, all of, all of this, uh, if he wasn't yeah. going to name his, uh, suspect? Well, that's a good point, and that is that is conjecture as to why he might have brought it up. I suspect you're probably right. I suspect it was just to draw attention to himself and to say, "Well, look, I'm the, I'm the one who solved this mystery. Scotland Yard couldn't do it, but but I have the I have the solution here, right in my pocket." I think that was probably his motivation. But yeah, you're right. He was seemed to be a person that would just shoot off his mouth. Uh, had a quick temper. We're told. Um, there was an incident, he was a, a breeder of Newfoundland dogs, and there was an incident once where, uh, the, the, I don't know, some gate or something was left open separating dogs, and, and the various dogs got together, and there was a big fight, and many dogs were killed, and Farquharson apparently threatened the life of the, of the servants who were in charge of, of, of keeping these dogs apart. You know, he had a very quick temper. Later on, he was sued by his opponent, uh, when he stood for re-election to Parliament, he was sued for libel by his opponent because of some statements he made uh, about that opponent uh, alluding to uh, possible homosexual activity when that opponent was in, in, in preparatory school. So here's a person who does shoot up his mouth. He did get into legal trouble for it later on. Um, you know, uh, so, so these things are being handled very carefully, I think, by the, by the papers because of that. All right. Yeah, and I, um, if I could jump in here for Please a sec. The, uh, I thought it was actually quite interesting that the libel suit he was involved in had to deal with homosexual acts in a prep yeah. school. Yeah. I, I don't know what you know that necessarily means for Druid, but it, it does seem kind of coincidental. I think, and I discovered that after I wrote the article, but I, I, uh, I think what it tells us is that those... Uh, uh, activities were more commonplace, maybe than than I at, at least uh, knew beforehand. Uh, that right. Those, those kinds of things did take place, and they were yeah. not not uncommon. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps that he knew more about it, like he was on a crusade against that activity, or something along those lines. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Uh, Mike, do you have something to say here? We're getting we're uh, getting close up to an hour, um, so let's uh, get in some. Get in some thoughts while we have the chance. Yeah, uh, just a quick one, really. I found okay. a, a case from December 1891 involving a Highgate schoolmaster by the name of Thomas Davis. He was charged with assaulting and beating William Perrow, who was aged 11. William had made a lot of mistakes in his Latin homework, so the teacher held him by the shoulder and struck him across the legs with a stick so that he was unable to sit down. The teacher was found guilty of mistreating this child but it was found only 40 shillings. Would that give an indication just to how serious um, the allegations were against Druitt at school? I, I could, yeah. I think that kind of corporal punishment, too, was, was uh, often carried out in these schools and could have been carried out to excess or could have been carried out on the wrong person, the son of an influential person. Uh, yeah, I think that, that could, you know, something like that could have been the case with Druitt. You know, a really interesting. I've just started to read uh, Deborah McDonald's uh, book, and and the, one of the early chapters.
to read uh, Deborah McDonald's uh, book, and in one of the early chapters, she has a chapter on, on Eaton relating to J.K. Stevens' experiences there, but very interesting read there, that, that chapter on Eaton and, uh, and, and uh, what took place there, both in terms of uh, possible homosexual activities and, and in terms of corporal punishment, too. Right. Yeah, that was a very well-researched book, I thought. Yeah. And certainly, if, if you have an interest in uh, suspects that had a link to a school like that, it'd be well good to read for anyone, for background information, at least. Right. But uh, do you, well, okay, I'll, I'll ask you this then. Um, do you think that it, it was kind of a, his pet suspect? Druitt? Uh, um, yeah, oh. do, do you think Druitt was McDonald's just pet suspect? As Anderson seems to have had, I mean, we have all, all of these um, uh, Scotland Yard officials uh, favoring different people. Um, I mean, I guess there's really no way of knowing. Um, yeah, well, he had reason. I mean, it wasn't just that it was a hunch. Or something. He had reason to believe that, that Druitt was the was the, the Jack the Ripper. He had he had the private information that he talked about that is that the Druitt's family suspected him, and that that seems to be coming from Parkhorse now. Um, yeah. You know, he, he talks about information that he's got. It's it's not just that this is somebody he has a hunch about. So he he believes that this is this is the Ripper. The interesting thing to me, though, is how the the story of the drowned doctor just persists. It persists oh, yeah. over the years in one form or another. You know, right. it, it it's it's uh, sort of there in Farquharson. He doesn't talk about him being drowned, but the suicided doctor is there in Farquharson. It's there in McNaughton, and and those who 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 saw or, or must have been told about McNaughton, you know, Griffiths and and Sims, um, uh, Aberline mentions him as a medical student, but kind of the same thing. Um, you know, even even in the little child letter, there's a little bit of that as he talks about Tumblety, and he erroneously says, well, he thought Tumblety committed suicide. Well, Tumblety's right. a doctor who committed suicide. There's a little bit of that in there. Basil Thompson, when he writes his uh, his history of Scotland Yard says, I believe he said it was a Russian doctor who was found drowned, you know. And then we go on through the whole the whole history is that drowned doctor just keeps on cropping up. So there, you know, there's there's something to that, um, something to that story. Right. Okay. Does anyone have any uh, final thoughts here? Uh, we we are running just over an hour. Uh, Mike. Yeah, Andrew, uh, you mentioned yeah. this week that you'd love to get the opportunity uh, to visit the local studies centre in Dorset. Yes. Um, what would you say to anyone that's listening out there right now um, who probably lives in that area? Um, would you like them to get involved and, and get in touch with you? Um, yeah. Send it to either JTR forums or Ripper Case Book um, for people to see, um, or even get in touch with you personally. Absolutely, um, yeah. Uh, I've, I've I've been to Dorset uh, a couple of times, and it's a it's a lovely area. I, I like to go back to Dorset just to go back to Dorset, frankly. But uh, I'm hoping to get to England this summer, and for a little bit more of an extended visit than I've been able to to make in the past, and hope to get down there again. But yeah, anybody who's uh, within striking distance of of any historical uh, resources, especially in the Dorset area, by all means, anything that you can find on Henry Richard Farquharson, his family, his descendants. I've had some people already send me some information. Apparently, there's a, there's a great grandson still living in the area. But you know, anything uh, that might 
reveal where his papers might be or just anything that might lead to a, a connection between Farquharson and the, Dors- and the Druid family or just anything about Farquharson. Uh, absolutely, if you are able to do that and can come across uh, any information there, yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, I'm very active on the Casebook forums. Um, just look for, for my posts. My username is acefalic. Just look for threads with my posts there and just post it there or, or private message me on the, on the forums. I'd appreciate it. All right. Well, Andy Spalick, um, I'm going to uh, congratulate you on your find of Farquharson, and you can read about that in the latest Ripperologist. And he also has a article coming out in the New River Notes, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, about the rail service between Blackheath and London in 1888 and whether it places Druitt near the East End. I want to thank you for being a guest on RipperCast today. My pleasure, Jonathan. And um, I also want to thank in whole Mike Covell, as always. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And Dan Norder, who's coming to us from Knoxville, Tennessee. Thanks for, yes. thanks for being on the show. I was glad to be here. And Howard Brown can hear us. <laughs> uh, uh, Goodbye, Howard. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, we, uh, his, his, uh, yes. we, we, can't, we can't hear his, uh, the tenorous voice uh, to say uh, how great it was to talk to you, Andy. Thank you. And um, that about wraps it up. So uh, we want to thank everyone for listening. Um, a couple of items uh, about the podcast that I want to say before we get out of here is, well, if you're listening to this podcast, you've figured out how to download it. We are currently experiencing technical problems with the iTunes Music Store in that if you've subscribed, um, it is not finding our URL feed. So you'll have to, in the f- until further notice, like for next Sunday's show... Visit the site, www.rippernet.com, hit the subscribe button on that site, on the podcast section, and it will download to your iTunes music player. And I hope to have that technical problem solved here as soon as possible. And uh, that makes a pod show. So again, I want to thank everyone for participating, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>